Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Tom Walmsley, who serves as Vice Chancellor for Advancement at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Senior Vice President at the University of Illinois Foundation. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me. Tom, is uh, he, he fessed up right away that he is um, participating in some hybrid work today, uh, has a child sick at home, and, and so really appreciate Tom both you know, juggling that, but also we were commenting how um, it, it's just nice that you can sort of balance those things in a way uh, that in a sort of pre-hybrid work world, we weren't able to. So thanks, Tom, for making that happen. Oh, no problem. Happy to do it. Well, Tom, uh, we love hearing about the professional pursuits of our uh, guests for sure, but it's also really fun to better understand your own path to higher education. And so to start, I'd love to say, take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Tom? Where was he? What was he up to? And what led him to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio? Oh, yeah. Uh, gosh, that, that was a long uh, longer ago than I care to admit. Uh, I was at the uh, Catholic High School in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I'm first generation college. Uh, my mom went back to uh, college as an adult student. So it was, uh, I remember uh, being a little overwhelmed with the process. It was much simpler at that time. You know, I graduated from high school in uh, 1989. So the Common App wasn't out there. And, you know, you only applied to a few schools. Um, and uh, I was looking at a, uh, several different schools uh, uh, in the state of Ohio. And when I went to Athens and I stepped on campus, and if you've ever been to Athens, Ohio, and seen the campus, it looks exactly like what every high school kid thinks college is going to look like, at least back in the late 80s. And so I fell in love with the place. Um, you know, went there, was a political science major. Uh, you know, was, was, a, was an average student, you know, was trying to find my way. Um, and, uh, you know, after that, um, I, uh, I was a political science major with aspirations to go to law school, took my first constitutional law class and realized I had no interest in law school. And so found my way to working for a professional trade association in Columbus, Ohio, uh, doing some grassroots uh, lobbying and fundraising work for them. And that's where I got, uh, uh, you know, dipped my toe into the, the fundraising realm, uh, went from Columbus back to Dayton, uh, worked for a couple uh, local uh, county level uh, elected officials did campaign, you know, management and fundraising for them. And I just had this knack where I just was one of those folks that just wasn't scared to ask people for donations or their vote. And so, um, uh, you know, after that, uh, realized um, that asked, like during your time at Ohio U, which I yeah. would encourage everybody, if you haven't uh, seen the campus, Google it now, it really is a remarkable place, especially this time of year. Oh. Uh, and I have been fortunate to, to get out there. But I have to ask, um, many of our guests get some exposure to the world of fundraising or alumni and development by way of their student experience, student activity, student calling, et cetera, et cetera. Was your current job in this field we work in on your radar when you graduated, or was it really more that meandering sort of stumble into it? You know, my I, I think I'm very typical of first generation college, you know, a bit meandering. Um, you know, didn't really know anything about philanthropy. Again, blue collar family, first generation college, you know, philanthropy was re really limited to, you know, our local church and the Catholic schools I went to growing up. Um, and so I had no exposure to it, didn't really know what it was. And again, stumbled upon it through, you know, my ventures into, you know, the public sector and government and, and, uh, and, and politics. 
and just the power of of giving and yeah. uh, how how it influences uh, so many things in our life that we kind of take for granted. I am a fellow first gen student, and I think about that all the time. Is that you know oftentimes we are some of the greatest beneficiaries of philanthropy and the least informed about it, certainly Absolutely. as students. And just, you know, maybe you you get a financial aid letter or a scholarship letter and there's a blurb about it, but you're not really processing what that actually means. And certainly not at the scale that it operates, you know, that people are giving millions of dollars. I don't think that maybe even many professionals in the field appreciate how little students would would know, especially you know, in a first gen context, about that part of the the world we live in. Um, yet, oftentimes, you know, we've had a lot of first gen students that are now in advancement leadership positions because once you figure it out and once it clicks, it's hard not to get really excited about the the impact because we've all lived it. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I, as a first gen college student, I think you are um, you don't know it at the time, but you're so overwhelmed with the entire experience. You know, what courses to take, what's campus life like, how to pay for college. Many of us, you know, working jobs while going to school. Um, how do you find a job post college? I mean, I think a lot of people were like me at that time where you graduate and you're looking around saying, where is the job? I uh, didn't really understand, you know, the power of networking, didn't understand the power of alumni networks. And uh then you, you start to navigate that and you find yourself in life where you've you know settled into a career path, uh, you know what you want, and then you start to reflect like you're, to your point, how much you did benefit from those people along the way that took the time to talk to you, took the time to guide you. You may not have understood what they were saying or why they were saying it at the time. Um, and that's really you know what drew me into higher education, which is you know the power of the educational experience is not only the classroom, but it's so much bigger than that, especially for first-generation college students. And uh, so you know, yeah. You were you were in Dayton, and my understanding is your first advancement role was at the University of Dayton. Is that right? University of Dayton, their Presidential Society Leadership Giving Club. Yeah, <laughs> remember mm -hmm. like it was yesterday. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. Uh, so, if you recall at that moment, what one? How did higher ed fundraising really get on your radar? Like, what prompted you to even apply? Mm -hmm. And take me back to maybe the first three months, six months, sounds like by way of the political and association work, you would sort of cut your teeth around yeah. fundraising, but what was different or familiar as you settled into that role? So how'd you yeah. hear about it? What made you apply and what were some of the early experiences? Well, the, uh, I had a, I had a transition period between the government and pol uh, political fundraising and campaign management and had a you know, four-year stint in uh, some nonprofit fundraising. So that's where I was really a full-time dedicated fundraiser, uh, doing some major gift work, got my feet wet in annual campaigns, you know, event, event planning, all those kinds of things. And, you know, if anybody's familiar with Dayton, Ohio, I mean, University of Dayton is is the big show in town, right? Everybody, uh, the basketball programs, iconic in my opinion. Uh, the university is a, a leader in Catholic education nationally, and that's a place where people want to be. And being a Catholic kid and going to Catholic high school, um, that's where if you wanted to be a fundraiser, you wanted to be at the University of Dayton. And I still think that that's true. They got a great shop. You've had some former UD uh, employees on your podcast and they do great work. And so when I went there, um, it was just trying to figure out how 
how educate how higher education actually works as an institution. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing because when you're a student, you're just kind of you don't get to peek behind the the curtain around the structures, the budgets, <laughs> the politics, the faculty, all of those things. So trying to figure out how to navigate higher education, understanding the biggest of higher education. And then the biggest um, challenge, I think, from a fundraising perspective is, is that when you, at least in my experience, when I was in front of a donor in politics or a nonprofit, um, there was a sense of urgency and timeliness, whether it was campaigns or the nature of your work in the nonprofit sector. So when you're in front of a donor, you're pretty confident you were going to get something, right? You didn't know what it was necessarily, but you knew it. In higher education, it's just a, it's a longer game. It's a cultivation process. The sense of urgency is just different. So that was probably the biggest shock for me is I was pretty good at getting in front of people just because I had done it, you know, for several years up to that. And then I got in the room and it was like, oh, this is this is just the beginning of the process where in my uh, previous uh, roles, it was a, a little bit more immediate, a little bit more transactional in nature. So um, and, uh, you know, but I was I was very fortunate. There was a great team of fundraisers there. I think my first higher education mentor, Fran Evans, who was the uh, vice president of advancement at the time there who really put that uh, program on the map in many ways, um, took me under her wing. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there very long before I found myself doing visits with the vice president. And uh, it was nerve wracking. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, you, you knew when you went into a meeting with Fran that uh, she knew what she was doing. She was very, very good. She knew how to make donors feel heard and important, uh, but also knew how to guide a conversation to get to where she ultimately wanted to go with the meeting. So. Um, I was very fortunate. I mean, that someone took the time to invest in me like that. Can I ask when you think about being in those meetings with Fran at a time when you were really learning the the yeah. business of higher ed fundraising, like, are there any specific things that you remember her doing that maybe less experienced fundraisers, maybe yourself at the time, yeah. wouldn't have been as confident or as assertive? I mean, what, what are some of those things where um, when you think about how Fran did it? Yeah relative to how maybe the average fundraiser does it, what could the average fundraiser learn from how Fran either prepared, conducted a meeting, followed up, et cetera? You know, she was just, she was really good at the prep work, right? So on the way to the appointment, I mean, you, when I got in the car, I had to be prepared, right? She was looking for the briefing for me. I'd never been in that environment before. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a wing it, but yeah, you know, there was just some, some general um, things she wanted to accomplish in the meeting, but not a script. And so, you know, it was free form and, uh, you know, that was, you know, just didn't know what to expect. And we got in the meeting, uh, she knew, she knew the donors very well. She knew the institution very well. Um, and she was very comfortable, um, going with the flow, knowing the unpredictable nature of conversations and the biggest takeaway from it, um, in one of our debriefs after the call was her ability to be present in the conversation, no matter how many people were in the room how the, the conversation might have lingered. Um, she was never thinking beyond the conversation at that very moment. Uh, she was in it 100%. And so that was always, and I, if you were to ask her, I don't even know if she'd remember telling me that, but it was like, you have to be present. You can't be thinking about what you want to accomplish in the meeting. You have, the, the donors have to know you're there for them and you're listening. And that seems very obvious, but you know, you know, now several years later, uh, you see gift officers going in and they're they're very intent on many of them, what they want to accomplish with the meeting. What's the next step? How do I move them closer to the ask? And you're not fully present in conversations with donors if you're thinking about those steps. And that was, she was a master at it. I still just remember her being able to um, 
get to where she wanted to go in most of those conversations, uh, and then giving herself critical feedback of things she could have done different and better during the conversation. And that was just uh, an invaluable experience I tell people about, obviously, you know, uh, 20 years later. So you went from the, the biggest game in town in Dayton to Antioch College, which is one of the smallest colleges. <laughs> it did. Yeah. So that's a big change. And I'm, I'm curious kind of what, what your reflections uh, were on that experience. Well, I was like most young fundraisers. I was eager for opportunity and, you know, and promotion. And I, I followed a good friend uh, there who uh, served as vice president, who was at the University of Dayton and left there as well. And uh, it was a small liberal arts college. Uh, I knew enough about it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's got a pretty storied reputation nationally in liberal arts education. I think it's the birthplace of uh, co-op education, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, they were in the middle of a campaign. They were struggling financially. And, uh, you know, I got a call from a friend that said, hey, I'm trying to put a team together that we, so we can do some good work for the school. And went there and there was uh, very little infrastructure, very little um uh, a strong culture of philanthropy, but, uh, you know, a, a donor population that had concerns about the future of the institution. And so it was a huge learning opportunity because I went from um, well-established Catholic education, uh, national brand institution to um, an institution that was really struggling and actually ended up closing its doors for a couple of years to regroup uh, shortly after the completion of that campaign. And so we went into crisis mode fundraising with a donor and uh, alumni population that had concerns about the future of the institution. It was a very different ballgame, um, uh, but learned a lot uh, about uh, how to relate to donors quickly. We didn't have a lot of time. Clock was ticking to raise money and keep the institution going. Um, how to navigate uh, highly emotional conversations with alumni that uh, were very passionate and cared deeply about the institution and wanted to see it thrive and get back to its heyday. Um, and uh, and then that, that was my first uh, fundraising job where I was really traveling a lot and learning how to you know manage my time to stay on the road, do donor follow up and do all those things. So it was a tremendous learning opportunity. Look at it very, very fondly. It was hard, um, but uh, something I, I definitely uh, don't regret. Uh, I don't know if it was the uh, uh, the most effective step in a career in a career path, but I definitely learned a lot from it. So I'm glad I did it. And then you had an opportunity in Dayton to join Wright State University very similar size of alumni population as University of Dayton, very different sort of historical origins, mission, uh, kind of career pathing, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious when you think about, you know, kind of same geography, same, you know, restaurants in the, in the general <laughs> vicinity, but, but sort of very different community. Um, does that matter or is sort of the art of fundraising, fundraising, you know, advancements, advancement, and you just have to sort of on the margin modify the approach or, or is there fundamentally something different about fundraising at Wright State versus University of Dayton? Well, um, in, in all of the institutions I've worked at, the value proposition for alumni and donors is unique to the institution. Um, you know, the emotional um, points that motivate donors to get involved and to give is different. And, you know, at Wright State, um, you know, they are uh, a public institution. Um, their, their number one goal at that time was to, to get students into the universities to put them on the path of higher education degree completion. Um, and I took a job as, you know, the uh, I believe my title was director of development for the, uh, the College of Business. I don't know if it was senior director or not. But, uh, and it was really to build a fundraising program for the college. 
Um, they had had a, a naming donor, some very generous donors for a few years, uh, but they were looking to take uh, their business education model to the next level. Uh, a very robust part-time and evening uh, MBA program, uh, which was focused on a lot of folks that were working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and you know, trying to complete uh, uh, an MBA for you know, obviously career promotion opportunities and things like that. And um, so it was very different. It was very different. You had a, it's a non-residential campus. So uh, a lot of commuter students, their time on campus was really defined in their relationships with faculty more so than each other. Uh, a division one sports program, but uh, you know, not, not something that, uh, you know, is packing the house and, uh, and, uh, and selling out the arena. Like, you know, when I spent time in university of Michigan and football was such a big thing to bring people together. Uh, so it, it was different. Uh, a lot of first generation college as well. And so philanthropy was a, uh, you know, relatively new concept uh, alums that had accumulated wealth and a passion to give back, but uh, working with them to teach them how they could give back and what the potential impact could be uh, was, was a fun process. So I was very fortunate enough to be a, a part of um, uh, helping close, you know, the first uh, million dollar gift from an alumnus uh, during my time there. Um, and, uh, you know, that was just uh, a really important part of my work there is to help establish that culture of philanthropy for the college. I didn't know this about Wright State, but it's one of the only non-military academy institutions I've seen where the number one employer is a branch of the military. So the U.S. Air Force is right the number one employer of Wright State grads. And, and so what is that that connection? You said that there's a, a base right next door. Yeah, uh, right. Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, and again, it, it's it's changed over the years and I haven't lived in Dayton for a long time, but it is a, a, a largely a supply chain hub uh, for the Air Force and um, I think other branches of the military. And, uh, you know, it is it's a, a lot of defense contractors, uh, uh, civil uh, civil employees of the Air Force, and they come to, you know, Wright State for degree completion, advanced degrees. And so it really is about, you know, getting to that next level of, you know, salary band and um, classification uh, in their in their different professions. That's what draws them to Wright State. And so that is, again, that's a very it's a very transactional form of, uh, of higher education. So uh, many of the alums and donors we work with had degrees from other institutions. Um, and Wright State was a relatively young institution as well. It was, a, I think, a, a, the state of Ohio if I'm remembering correctly, uh, started Wright State out of uh, branches of uh, Ohio State uh, University of Miami and a small uh, Wright State University made them all one and made a bigger university. So it's got an interesting history. And I just need to ask you, I know that while you're at Wright State, you decided to pursue your MBA. I did. Yes. I'd love to know more about kind of had that been on your radar or sort of why did the stars align at, at that time? And are you glad you did it? Oh, uh, so glad I did it. So, you know, uh, classroom by myself was, you know, an average undergraduate student. Uh, pursuing an MBA was a chance to um, truly apply myself to the extent that I wish I would have at different times as an undergrad. Uh, the part-time and evening uh, weekend program at, uh, uh, at Wright State was perfect for me. I was uh, uh, newly married, uh, expecting a first child. So, you know, I... Uh, uh, did the MBA uh, while my wife was a TV news anchor and expecting a child. So I had my head evenings free. She was a morning anchor. So she got up at 2.15 in the morning and went to bed at 5 p.m. So my evenings were free. So rather than, uh, you know, sitting around watching TV, I took classes. 
And I did it over a period of three years and it was great. Learned a lot. Um, I did it for, uh, again, you know, I believe in education, wanted to uh, prove to myself that, uh, you know, I uh, could have done better as an undergrad, if I'm being honest, and uh, really applied myself, learned a lot from it. Um, uh, had some, met some great classmates in the, in the course of the program and also, uh, was starting to think, you know, being married and becoming a father, thinking about my career and, um, the importance of having an advanced degree for, you know, applying for future jobs. And, uh, you know, the MBA really, um, worked out well and I learned a lot from it. And you then made the move to the university of Michigan, which is where, uh, you, you spent a kind of bulk of your your career, yeah. and I'm curious, you know, one, what what sort of prompted the move out of Ohio and sort of you know to to a new area, right? Not not too too yeah. far, but a new area. And then second, um, you would you had had a couple of you know couple years, three years yeah. finding your way, and then really things appeared to click at Michigan yeah. where you were able to have a 10-year run in a sector where that's very rare. And I'm just curious yeah. what the dynamic was at Michigan that um, enabled you to grow in that manner and then how you think about applying that same, yeah. uh, you know, any lessons learned from that experience now in your leadership position. But let's start with Sure. Just move to Michigan and and yeah, set the set the context. Well, it uh, it, it was a it was a, a bit of a controversial decision to to move to that school up north when you're from Ohio. And my wife is from Columbus, Ohio, and comes from a long line of Buckeye fans. And um, so rarely and I, do you do you have your family boo when you make a career decision, but maybe there was some booing around Thanksgiving. <laughs> there, there, there was there was some booing. Uh, and again, my wife was a TV news anchor. So when they announced that she was leaving to follow her husband to Ann Arbor uh, for a career move, that uh, prompted a very interesting emotional outpour from the viewers at the time. Uh, they were not happy to see her go. And uh, we're trying to. Good thing uh, Twitter wasn't as popular at that. Yeah, point. It, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but I was, you know, I was looking to, again, to take the next step. And I was of the belief that getting to a bigger program uh, was going to help me develop the skills and experiences that I needed to, to continue to grow. Uh, we were expecting our first child. My wife was thinking about getting out of TV. So it just seemed like if we were going to make a transition, this was the time to do it. Um, I ended up, um, I don't know, I can't even remember through a series of interesting events, just getting connected one of the, with one of the talent management folks uh, at Michigan and sent him a resume uh, and applied to be, you know, their director of development for, um, their school of information, which is their second smallest academic unit on campus. Um, didn't know much about it at the time, but I knew that uh, Michigan was a place that I, I'd always quietly been a Michigan fan. For those people that know me, I was never really quiet about it. It was just something I didn't talk about because I didn't like to get booed in public. Um, and I just knew that Michigan's reputation uh, academically and their national brand was a place that um, it was going to be serious about philanthropy and it was going to be serious about alumni engagement. And there were going to be high expectations. And I just was at a point in my life where I was really ready to kind of take on the 800 pound gorilla. And so it was very fortunate uh, to be hired by um, the dean at the time, uh, Martha Pollack, who's now the, the president at Cornell. Uh, I got to spend a, a few months with her before she transitioned into an associate provost role. And, you know, then I was a part of, um, you know, Jerry May's team at the uh, university of Michigan. And, um, 
it, it, it changed my life instantly. Um, I, I can't even explain it. It was a, I was very fortunate. It was a fit from day one for me. I felt at home. Um, I went from, you know, a 7,500 person uh, advancement shop to a 500 person advancement shop. So the first few months were a bit of a blur. I was in awe of the institution. I was in awe of the number of fundraisers, uh, a lot of talented folks there. And, um, and I was just uh, committed personally and professionally to making it work. Uh, and so dedicated myself to figuring out how Michigan worked, how I could help the School of Information. Um, and I really focused on making the most of the opportunity I had. And I, I, just, I just blindly believed that if I did a good job, it would pay off. And it did. Um, and so, you know, um, uh, two and a half years at the um, School of Information uh, led to director of major gifts position at the um, Ross School of Business. Uh, and then a year later, you know, was, you know, chief advancement officer there. And uh, we were in the middle of a, you know, $400 million campaign. And so it just, it just took off. Um, and I think um, what enabled me to stay there uh, for 10 years was I just, I loved the place. I loved the challenge. Um, you know, Michigan is, um, you know, their, one of their mottos, you know, being leaders and best. And that's a very real part of the culture. And uh, it, it is a culture of, continuous improvement. And I liked that challenge. And again, I was very fortunate to get to spend time with Jerry May. And, um, you know, when I, when I started at the school of information, six weeks later, uh, the Dean who hired me said, Hey, I'm moving into a different role. I had just moved my family. My wife had just quit her job. So it was a, it was a stressful time. And, you know, Jerry, um, thanks to uh, Martha reached out to Jerry and Jerry, you know, reached out to some other folks and said, Hey, we got to support this guy. He's brand new. He's going through a transition. And this is, this is a lot. And um, I was, I just knew that that was something that was a unique opportunity. So um, I stayed close to Jerry. You know, I, I, I can't say that we spent a lot of time together, you know, personally, but uh, um, I listened when he called. I was there uh, when the central advancement team called and needed help or needed cooperation or anything like that. I just went out of my way to make sure it happened. And through the course of that, you know, learned a lot, got exposed to a lot of the senior people on the team to see how they worked and how they thought and how Jerry really ran the business of alumni engagement and philanthropy at Michigan and just paid attention and listened a lot. And uh, I, feel that, like, I feel like Michigan, I, ha I just have to ask, yeah. just given the scale of the organization, I know there's, you know, between 500 and 1,000 people working in advancement. Yeah. And I feel like in many advancement shops and definitely some of the ones that, you know, you had worked in previously, you can sort of get by with a bit more of the, you know, walk around the hallways, right? Check yes. in on people, the verbal check-in. That does not work when you're talking about communicating to a 500-person organization. And so I'm actually curious when you reflect on Jerry's role as a leader yeah, and you being a member of that, you know, broad team and a new member of the team, how does an advancement leader lead and effectively in that context relative to an Antioch college or, you know, something yeah. more in the middle of the spectrum? Well, it's actually even, uh, it's a great, that's a great question. It's actually even more complicated than that because Michigan's completely decentralized. So I had no reporting responsibilities to Jerry. I solely, solely reported to the deans that I worked for. And, you know, it was, you know, we have our goal. We're a part of a large organization, but we're accountable for raising our our own money. We're accountable for raising, uh, recruiting our own students in many ways. 
And so, so, so boiling it down, when you think about my yeah. boss is yeah is the dean versus yes. Well, and that and that was that's that was what I um that's what I focused on. Like I I knew who Jerry was. I knew Jerry's reputation. I knew Jerry. Uh, I respected Jerry's work and his relationship with the donors. And you know, when I worked with my deans, it was you know Jerry is an asset. Um, this isn't um, uh, confrontational. It's not us versus them. We were all on the same team. And you know, Jerry um, was always very willing to help. And so working with the college leadership to make sure they understood that, um, you know, in any university central administration, there's always, you know, ups and downs and different dynamics of the relationship. But um, I was committed to making sure that we were good partners with Jerry and his team because I understood what Jerry could bring to the table. Uh, he had relationships and a history and a track record in Michigan that, again, he had been there for a number of years himself. Um, that was an asset to us. And so um, I made an effort to stay connected to him and his team um and keep my team in, in the Ross school and in the, uh, the school of information uh, in lockstep as much as possible with um with central development and that 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 paid dividends i mean uh you know it's uh it, it shows the way in advance we always talk about collaboration and you know collaboration is this word that you know some people take a deep breath and roll their eyes about because it's hard to work with people that have you know, different agendas and different timelines and things like that. But at the end of the day, if you come together and are willing to be transparent and honest about what each of the person at the table is looking to get out of it, what you have to accomplish, what my dean wants from me, what central advancement is trying to accomplish and what the president and provost want out of them, you can find common ground. And sometimes there are some competing priorities and you can talk through those. But if we can partner through those difficult times, we can find a way to get through it. And I think that's one of the things that we were able to do really well during my time in Michigan, which made spending 10 years there pretty easy. Um, it was fun. It flew by. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot. I got a chance to uh, meet a lot of donors, um, be involved. And, and at the Raw School, one of the interesting things, one of the many interesting things was, is that the College of Business really was just a, a, a key touch point for so many university donors and alumni that didn't give to the business school. So I found myself working with a cross section of the most right. generous uh, and involved people at the university. And I never asked them for a gift. And that was amazing because I got this, I got this perspective of university fundraising that being in a smaller unit that maybe wasn't as central to day-to-day -day life in Michigan, you know, you, you didn't necessarily see. So um, that was really special. I was just going to ask, we, we've not had a lot of business school fundraising leaders and Ross being a top business school, even thinking about the profile of the graduates. We talked about Wright State, number one employer, the Air Force and, and that connectivity and, and the access uh, first gen dynamic. You know, at Ross, um, it, it's a different group, top employers, Amazon, Google, McKinsey. And so I'm just curious when you think about hitting the road and, and, and doing some of the fundraising work. Um, with an audience that is, you know, as business savvy as it gets, they negotiate for a living, you know, it's, it, it's gotta be a different dynamic than, yes. uh, some of the other missions, right. And, and context you'd operated in. And so I'm just curious how, how different it felt. Uh, it, it didn't really feel that different for me. I mean, it seemed pretty logical. I mean, business schools, uh, 
and especially top 10 business schools are about rankings and their place in that top 10 and their placement statistics and their student profile, you know, average GMAT scores, of the MBA program. So it's actually pretty straightforward. And, um, you know, you are dealing with very savvy private sector investors and leaders um, and they cut right to the chase. So when you get there, you, you, you know what questions they're going to ask. Um, Cultivation is probably a little more direct. It, it, it's much more direct, um, but equally as emotional. I think that the I think that the misconception about business school fundraising is it sometimes gets uh, categorized um, or described as transactional, and there's a transactional nature to it. But it's emotional. I mean, there's a lot of pride as to you know when you go into a CEO's office, what diploma is in the frame behind his or her desk, and the name on it, and they're um, you know, C-suite execs, they look at that and they tease each other about the rankings and, you know, the scores on the football field or the sports field, whatever it is. And there's a tremendous amount of emotion behind that. And, you know, it manifests itself very quickly into a business conversation. Um, but, um, you know, staying in touch uh, with, uh, with business school donors, keeping them involved um, in the future direction of the school, um, giving them opportunities to mentor students, uh, helping them hire and have access to faculty and students. It's all it's all part of the emotional value proposition for the donor, um, whether they represent a corporation or they're an individual. And it, it's a lot of fun and they push you. They push you. They, t- they challenge the school because they're pushing the school like they push their organizations to be the best they can be. And donors push business school fundraisers because they have high expectations. And that was just an environment that that I was very comfortable in and was very fortunate to find some really great um, stewardship folks and communication folks and major gift fundraisers that thrived on it. And we were really able to, um, I think, take that program to another level. So I want to ask, how do you balance being a good listener and being present with an audience like the business school community that is highly opinionated, that has a bunch of ideas about how you can further improve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you as fundraiser ultimately cannot really impact. Um, You might be able to take some of it back to the dean, although I'm sure the dean doesn't want to hear every single (laughs) question from every single donor. And so how do you sort of balance being a good listener with the expectation setting of even if you agree with their recommendations, like you're probably not going to be able to affect that change. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, and I think at that you know, that's one of the things about as we talk about uh, career development and training future, future talent and leaders in advancement that as an industry, we don't talk about enough. Um, talk a lot about asking for asking for dollars and getting out the door and stewardship and things like that. But how do you how do you handle crucial conversations and telling people no? It's very, it's very hard um, without without telling them no. Right. Being agreeable without agreeing. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that is something I think I had a lot of chance to, to work on, um, you know, whether it was, oh, did I lose you again? No, oh, you're there. I got you. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not sure. My, I'm, you're freezing on my end. Sorry about that. Um, uh, but, uh, I found, um, again, to go back to the being present, being consistently there and being willing and open-minded and confident enough to sit across the table from the folks and allow them to express themselves and, and altruistically listen um, and be honest with them about what you can and cannot do as an institution um, while taking that feedback back to the dean and leadership of the school 
to accurately reflect the concerns and interests of the alumni and the donor population. They need to know. Um, they need to know whether uh, decisions, perceptions uh, are out there, whether people agree with them or not, um, because we have to manage them. And that doesn't mean we can change everybody's mind, but I have found that people appreciate the ability, the opportunity, uh, if you will, to, to voice those concerns, to be heard. And in, I think in all cases, people are reasonable, right? Um, that uh, there are some things that we, you can't do as an institution. And if you can explain why and are willing to sit there and explain why and have that conversation, you gain mutual respect in, to move the relationship forward. You can move past many of those issues. Now, there are some that are deal breakers for people. And I think any institution in the country, as they, they, they see their donor life cycle and you know, donors ebb and flow and their engagement around leadership transitions or decisions at the school or happenings at a university. And I think the key to um, making those relationships consistency is being there in advancement staff, being there um, through those ebbs and flows of the relationship. And that's one thing that I'm extremely proud to have been a part of the, the Raw School team there because we as a team were very, very good at especially being there during the tough times. So you had the opportunity to make the move to the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, by my count, six, seven months before the pandemic. What inspired yes. <laughs> that move? And then, you know, what were you excited about? And then ultimately, what, what did you learn when you were thrown the ultimate curveball? Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we have enough time to go through all that, but um, I was looking for my next career step. I had, you know, about 10 years at the University of Michigan. Um, we wrapped up, you know, a $5 billion plus campaign successfully um, and was looking for the next step. And uh, UIC came onto my radar um, because of the, the high percentage of first generation college students. It's a minority serving and Hispanic serving institution. And um, an R1 that uh, was in the you know midpoint of a $750 million campaign. And in the conversations I had, you know, with the then chancellor and uh, Jim Moore, who's the president of the uh, University of Illinois Foundation, you know, it was an opportunity for, for me to bring what I had learned in a big, you know, shop like Michigan and try to not bring it in cookie cutter and drop it in at UIC, but take what I had learned there, you know, from people like Jerry and the many other great fundraisers and alumni engagement professionals and create a unique brand of advancement uh, for UIC for the you know, urban uh, public uh, serving institution. And um, it was a no brainer. I got to campus and I walked through campus and um, I thought I could make a difference. And, you know, met with the faculty, met with the uh, uh, academic leadership, met with senior members of the team, and they were all there for the same reason. You know, they're, they're there. Uh, it's, a, it's a public mission at UIC to serve the city of Chicago. It's about um, opportunity access, uh, equity, and those are things that are important to me. And I felt uh, very good that we could establish a program that had a, had a solid foundation uh, and take it to the next level to really help UIC be a national leader in public urban education it already is, but to be known outside of Chicago. I mean, we are like 95% you know, of our students come from Illinois. So I just thought there was an opportunity to really grow through advancement, uh, the brand and the reach. 
And as a point of reference, um, I, I believe over 40%, or it says even in some stats, 50% of the uh, of the students are first gen, which is remarkable. Yeah, yeah and uh, of incoming class, freshman class, 70-ish um, percent are Pell Grant eligible. So you're, uh, you know, we, uh, we have a student population that is does and continues to benefit greatly from an educational experience, uh, you know, top, top 50 public institution, uh, top 100 national institution. Um, and, uh, you know, if there was ever going to be a place where I could have impact uh, through philanthropy, through uh, building a culture of philanthropy, assembling a team and a model of alumni engagement that could take an institution to the next level, this was just an opportunity that, you know, I was looking for. Um, was getting my feet wet, was trying to figure out campus. Uh, you know, I, I am married. I have three children, um, uh, getting everybody settled into schools. It was the first move we had made really as a family. Cause my wife and I moved, you know, when we just had a, an infant, uh, and then, you know, the world got turned on its ear. And so to say it was a learning experience would be an understatement. It was very, very difficult, uh, balancing the transition at home, in uncharted waters in a pandemic, um, you know, for the parents out there, uh, you know, remote learning wasn't remote learning when you have young children. It was homeschooling, uh, <laughs> homeschooling on Zoom, which was very challenging and uh, forever indebted to my wife for her expertise and patience in doing that while I was new in a job. Um, and then trying to build culture and understand an institution on Zoom and build a team. Um, tremendously difficult. Um, you know, I think uh, in hindsight, one of the one of the blind spots I had was, um, you know, I've been traveling and, and working in the old definition of remote work, doing major gift work for years. So phone calls and emails and Zoom were a pretty natural way for me to engage with people. It wasn't for the majority of my team. It wasn't for the majority of people on campus. Um, you know, and uh, that was something that you know, we, I think we did a good job, but we could have never anticipated how much people were, well, we, one, we didn't know how long it was going to last two years, but uh, how important that in-person contact was internally. Um, the donors seemed to, and the alums seemed to transition easier than internal audiences. I mean, moving alumni engagements to Zoom and it actually being in Chicago where it can take you an hour to, to drive 15 miles. Zoom was easier for a lot of people. So we, as we got creative with our alumni outreach and moved to a digital platform, we actually were reaching more alumni than we had with in-person events. So that was a great learning opportunity. And we built a whole infrastructure around that and you know, uh, online alumni mentoring. Um, but it was really staff and campus interactions, which are critically as, as important as donor relationships. And that was, that was hard. Um, and uh, finding ways to bring team members together, build relationships across campus through our, you know, 16 degree granting uh, schools and colleges uh, was difficult and being new, you know, being, being, being the guy from uh, that came in from the outside, you know, trying to get us across the finish line of a, of a campaign and um, uh, trying to learn the institution and doing that all over Zoom was, was difficult. And so how do you balance now spending an hour to go 15 miles? <laughs> yeah versus when it might make sense to just do that quick phone call or Zoom? Yeah. And how do you coach your team on using judgment 
balancing efficiency and sort of frictionless engagement relative to the more, you know, nuanced elements that you do get only in person, at least right now. Right. No, that's, I mean, I, that's the, that's what we're all trying to figure out. I mean, I do think uh, hybrid work is here to stay. I think the, uh, the job market, the labor market is dictating that people have in, come to enjoy and appreciate the flexibility that hybrid work provides. I think an advancement in particular, we're seeing that, um, you know, part of the, the great resignation and then the shift we're seeing in the industry is that people are taking jobs that provide them with more flexibility. So, um, you know, I'm committed to maintaining a level of flexibility for my team in hybrid work uh, with a focus on bringing us together um, individually and as teams on certain days of the week where we can still see each other and be together um, while uh, starting to uh, increase the number of um, events and in-person engagement that we have with, with alumni. I think the alumni are hungry for it. They're ready for it. Um, and, uh, but trusting, trusting the team, I think that's the biggest challenge any, any leader has. You have to trust the team and your team members to make good decisions and, and have transparent conversations about what's working and what's not. And does a hybrid environment contribute to success? And in some cases, there are some things that um, you know, you just have to be in person for them. We have to be honest with ourselves and just accept that. Um, other things, there's more flexibility. And I think trusting the team, the trusting my team, my leaders to make those calls, um, knowing that there are just in any part of life, there are just some non-negotiables or some events and some things that we have to do, some meetings we have to be at in person because culture is important um, and making sure our teams are connected to the mission of the institution you know, there, there's an in-person component of that that's just critical. They have to be on campus. They have to see students. Um, that doesn't mean every day. That doesn't mean 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, and people need flexibility because we can't move backwards around the balance that uh, many of us have come to appreciate around uh, that hybrid work provides. Yeah, I, I do think there's been a bit of this sort of ironic um, shift in the sector that I've heard from some of our guests and just friends in the sector where it was, you know, pre-pandemic, get out of the office, get on the road, get out of the office, get on the road. And then a little bit of like, get back to the office. Where is everybody? Get back to the office. And it's like, well, you just told us, you know, for a decade plus to, to not be in the office. And now it's sort of get in the office. Obviously, it's somewhat role specific. And I, I do think ultimately, we need to, you know, start developing a matrix around um, the trade-offs between scale and yeah. in-person experience. And, you know, for example, going to a football game in real life is a lot more fun uh, than trying to, uh, you know, whatever, watch it by yourself. Um, there are other experiences, for example, I referenced this before, but I serve on the, the board of the Brown University Football Association. We used to do our board meetings on Saturdays before football games in Providence which worked really well for the guys who live in Rhode Island, but for the, you know, everybody else, it meant you basically had to listen through the, you know, the phone in the middle of the table and nobody could hear what anybody was saying. And it was really a horrible experience. And now we've shifted those board meetings to be via zoom and it's completely frictionless. We have incredible participation guys across generations and geographies can participate I hope we never go back to saying, well, that's something that we really need to do in person because it just doesn't make sense. I think there are a lot of donor visits where 
as a donor, and I bet those Ross Business School alumni, they don't need somebody to spend two grand to fly out and see them in nights in hotels. Sometimes, sure, maybe, but I would imagine a lot of cases it's, hey, let's like we can do this remotely, um, you know, even if they're might yeah. be a bias towards why well, I want you to be out in front of people in person. And so, you know, even thinking about what maybe the leader might want the team to do versus what do the donors actually want in a yeah. post-pandemic environment um, are things we're going to have to continue to think through. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and and that is, I mean, we always talk about donor-centric fundraising. That's got to manifest itself in how we build our teams and how we manage our teams because that the culture we build within our within our shops has to be reflective of that donor-centric culture balancing against institutional expectations. And so, you know, that's that's what I'm trying to find that sweet spot. That's difficult. I think we're all trying to figure it out. You know, at UIC, we still are largely a commuter campus with a robust, you know, campus experience for students and faculty and staff. Um, but, you know, when you're in Chicago, and again, I'm, I, uh, I'm relatively new-ish to Chicago land, you know, flex scheduling is something that's been here for a long time. So it's not it's not a new concept. We're just looking at the next evolution of it. And, um, you know, it uh, there's tremendous value to it. We've been able to, I think, retain some really great staff because we've maintained hybrid work uh, and given them the ability to do that. Uh, we've made some recent great hires because we can hire people that um, can uh, maintain work-life balance and still be at home and help out and, uh, and still get the work done. And it, it's it's not something to be scared of. Uh, it's just something that you have to be honest with yourself and monitor and know that uh, you're going to all come together and revisit it uh, more than periodically to see what's working and what's not. Yeah, I think, look, there are almost every part of the higher education uh, enterprise, for the most part, right, there's online, digital ed, et cetera. But for the most part, it is highly um, centered around the sort of built environment, the campus and so forth. Yeah. And, and And I think, therefore... Um, there's obviously been a, a hard shift back to in-person experiences for all of the reasons that four-year residential higher education has, you know, been able to transform lives like yours and mine. But at the same time, that dynamic, you know, those rules, I, I would argue, don't necessarily apply to two parts of the enterprise, one advancement and the other one being enrollment. You know, your prospective students are not physically on campus. Your alumni are not physically on campus. And so if you're going to have a more flexible orientation towards remote work, it should be in the um, parts of the business where the constituencies are not centered around the campus experience. And I think in a lot of institutions, it has been sort of a one size fits all or there's a bias towards, you know, treating everyone, uh, you know, equitably. But I, but I think that there's something just strategically misaligned. If you're going to say, yeah, we know none of your alumni, for the most part, are physically here, uh, but you need to be. Um, and, and it sounds like you've been able to at least find some balance. We're, we're trying to find the balance because, I mean, again, just to expand upon your point, but but being um, present and, and seen in advancement on campus is critically important uh, to make sure that people know we're there that were important. <laughs> that, Even if your alumni aren't there, your business partners, your you know, your internal they, constituencies and stakeholders are all present. Yeah, and they and they and they need to see us and they know they need to know that we're present. Uh so finding that balance is really important. Um and you know, I I agree with you. I mean, UIC we've been very very fortunate to have leadership that understands that that we can strike that balance. But even with my own shop, 
uh, as it relates to hybrid environment, there are some functions that need to be in person more than others. And we do need to create some equity across that. It's not just the major gift officers who are, have been traveling for years that need to continue to have flexibility in, in remote work. It, it's everyone. And trying to find that balance around scheduling is something that we've been very diligent about. I mean, it's not, um, you know, we're, we're really committed to making sure that all of the functions within advancement are make sure that they understand that they are valued and feel valued equally. Um, and, you know, hybrid work, when you got somebody that's used to being at their desk in the office, you know, if it's processing gifts or answering a phone or what have you, trying to create the same level of flexibility for them is critically important. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your kind of candor as you continue to navigate this in real time. Um, our time is coming to an end here, but I just have to give you an opportunity to tell me about the current team, are you hiring? You know, yes. how should folks um, get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Uh, you know, uh, we we are going to be hiring. So, you know, we just wrapped up a, a successful $750 million campaign, you know, finished about $803 million. We're already in, as no surprise to any of the listeners here, we're already in pre-campaign mode for the next one. Uh, have a very aggressive hiring plan for the next three fiscal years um, that has been... Uh, uh, conceptually approved and now we're you know we're walking through the the funding model uh so upwards of um you know 30 or more new uh employees over the next couple of years uh potentially more than that that's a model modest number um with a mind's eye on uh, having our next campaign goal be over a billion dollars uh, a lot of frontline fundraisers alumni engagement professionals talent management professionals i mean we're investing heavily in uh professionalizing advancement and to put ourselves on par with other R1s um, in terms of uh, staff uh, numbers and, you know, our production, the team I've got at UI, UIC is great. We, we crushed the goal. We had our three biggest uh, fundraising years during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people dug deep to make it happen. And um, it uh, can't thank them enough and really proud of them, proud to be a part of the group and, uh, and you know they deserve the investment that the foundation and the university and the system is committed to making into our shop. Um, you know, I, I my email you know, uh, and and phone number is out there. Um, I love connecting with people in the profession. Um, uh, I I think I've established a little bit of a reputation of being uh, pretty candid with people who reach out to me about opportunities and um, feedback on what they're considering around career moves or how to make themselves more marketable for the next step in their career. And uh, love to have those conversations, always go out of my way to make time. And uh, yeah, but if you're if you're in the market, you're looking to, to get to Chicago for any number of reasons, you're um, passionate about public education and uh, a social justice, social equity mission in higher education. I mean, we're someplace that uh, uh, people need to be looking at. It's an amazing mission, Tom. Thank you for sharing. And I wish you all the absolute best. And it's honestly super exciting to hear such an aggressive growth plan. Um, and, and, and I know that it's a lot, right? Growth is exciting, but a whole new set of challenges. And, and I hope that folks will take Tom up on the opportunity to connect. He's also very active on LinkedIn. So make sure to find Tom there. Um, and, and I just want to say thank you for sharing your journey with us, Tom. No, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. All right. Best wishes. And with thank that, Brent signing off with today's guest, Tom Walmsley who is the Vice Chancellor for Advancement at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Senior Vice President at the University of Illinois Foundation. Take care, everybody.